All right. Whoa. Okay. That. You got me? Okay, good. Good evening. So tonight we get to do a very um, exciting talk. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about Jesus. Today we have, we've kind of covered a lot of the background of the Catholic faith, where it comes from. And today we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. I think I can take my mask off. I'm far enough away from everybody now. If I can get my mask off without pulling out all of my hearing aids. There, that'll make it easier for you to understand what I'm saying. So let us uh, begin tonight with an Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, I promised to talk about Jesus, but the first one, person I'm going to talk about is David, King David. Remember David, the story, David and Goliath kills the big giant. Prior to David, the nation of Israel, you know, when they came out of Egypt, um, all the slaves left Egypt, and they'd kind of and they'd coalesced into tribes. There were twelve sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and everybody pretty much belonged to. Well, most people belonged to one of those twelve tribes. But then there were a lot of other people, a lot of uh, foreigners who jumped on the bandwagon of the slaves leaving Egypt, and they all came in. So there were uh, a number of different groups and clans, um, and it was very tribal. And they wanted to have a king. They had a king named Saul for a while. He didn't, do, uh, he didn't work out too well. And then the kingdom passed to David. And David was the uh, pinnacle of the kings of Israel. He's only the second king, but he is the pinnacle king of Israel. And he did a lot of things. He, he got, brought all the tribes together and unified them to make one nation. He uh, defeated all the enemies surrounding Israel and established secure borders. And of course, in, uh, in a king, king, kingdom, a kingship, the king is not only the, the man who makes the laws, he's the one who enforces the laws, and he's the judge of the land. So he, he really established fair justice throughout the land. He centralized the worship of God in Jerusalem. Before that, there were lots of different... Uh, people had little shrines in their homes and things like that. But he centralized the worship of God in Jerusalem. And he was an international figure. All nations, all the surrounding nations um, were uh, in communication with David. A lot of times when you hear about, read about David and Sol his son Solomon having so many wives. David had like 600 wives. De Solomon had 1,000. Um, that's because all these neighboring chieftains and the way they established treaties was exchange daughters in marriage. And so they wind up with all of these wives whom they scarcely knew. Um, but nonetheless, that's how these, these big harems were established. So David really established for the first time the strength of the nation of Israel. And his son Solomon did a great job too. Solomon followed him. Solomon 
has a reputation for his wisdom. Um, but it's really David they look to as the one who established things. After Solomon, uh, the next king, everything fell apart. The nation was thrown into civil war. The worship of God split, some in Jerusalem, uh, some on Mount Gilboa, I think was the name of it. Um, and everything began to fall apart. The, the Israel was in uh, civil war for 300 years until finally the northern tribes were um, conquered by Assyria. That's, that's, how, that's the only thing that brought an end to the civil war. And from that point on, everything just kind of fell apart. Everybody got, uh, there, was egg, there were exiles and there was devastation. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And there was a longing in Israel for a new David, a new king who would come and set things right, reestablish that kingship. And you read a lot of the prophecies of the coming Messiah, and that's one of the things you read. He will sit upon the throne of his father David forever. There's that sense that there will be a new David and a new king, kingship, a new kingdom. And this was what everybody thought Jesus was going to do. Once it became clear that he was the Messiah, it was firmly believed by everyone, including the apostles, the disciples, all believed that he was going to establish a new kingship of David, a new kingdom. And this expectation was so strong that, um, remember the feeding of the 5,000, break the loaves and the fish and, fit, and Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children, so 20, 25,000 people. And this was such a powerful miracle. The scripture says that they wanted to make Jesus king by force. They tried to force him to become king, but he refused. And in fact, he did the bread of life homily, which you read in John chapter 6. And that, that, that blew everybody's minds and they all left. Even to the point after his resurrection, I think one of the devastations of the crucifixion is all hope was lost. Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. Jesus was supposed to be the one who's going to establish the king, kingship, the kingdom of Israel. And he's crucified. All hope is lost. In fact, a contemporary of Jesus, a, a historian by the name of Josephus, is very clear on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed Jesus was the Messiah. But he had been put to death. He, didn't, he wasn't a Christian. He was Jewish. And... He did not realize that Jesus was God. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but the Messiah was put to death. All hope is lost. Even after the resurrection, at the ascension, when Jesus is ascending into heaven, the disciples, these are the 12, okay, that have followed around for three years. These people are supposed to know what they're doing. They've been in class with Jesus for three years. And as Jesus is ascending into heaven, they ask him, are you going to establish, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? That's what they ask him. Are you going to do it now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And Jesus ascended into heaven. And they, the scripture says they just stood there. They were lost and confused. Because Jesus was, had still not established the kingdom. 
And finally, an angel had to come and tell them to go to Jerusalem and do what they were told to do, which was to pray and wait for the Holy Spirit. And so that's what they did. Because this was the confusion. They expected Jesus to be established a kingdom of David, a kingdom of Israel. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. And no one really got it. They did not understand what Jesus was trying to do. So, but today I want to take a look at a lot of the things that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Now, here's a spoiler. By the end of the night, we're going to realize the kingdom of God is the church. <laughs> but as we look at the teachings of Jesus to teach us what is the kingdom of God, he is telling us what he wants the church to be. Jesus is establishing his kingdom on the earth, and his kingdom is the church. So first, let's ask, what is a kingdom? You know, a lot of times when we think, because we're very map-oriented, we grew up with maps, and we see maps and, and places with borders, and we think a kingdom is, is like a place with borders. But that's actually not true even today. A kingdom really is the power and the authority of the government. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world. If you're an American citizen and you break an American law, they can come get you and bring you home and throw you in jail. I mean, they, um, that's what extradition is all about, okay? The kingdom is not borders. The kingdom is authority. So it's the authority of God that Jesus is establishing on the earth. What is the authority of God? Well, Jesus teaches us a lot of things about it. One of the first things he teaches, if you read the Sermon on the Mountain, or, the, or in, in Luke it's called the Sermon on the Plain, it's pretty much the same sermon, that he is teaching that whereas the law of Moses was all about outward adherence to the law. You had to do what the law said to do and not do what the law said not to do. So it's all about doing these outward exterior observances. But Jesus teaches that true spirituality is not about the external observance. It's about the interior motivation. So, if, you know, most of us have read the Sermon on the Mountain. And Jesus says, you know, you know that the law says not to commit adultery, but if you are lusting after a woman, you know, that's the same thing. It's the interior motivation. Jesus uh, teaches, you know, you know it's, the law says not to commit murder, but if you're angry with your brother, it's the same thing. You're committing murder. It's about the interior life. Jesus goes much deeper than the law of Moses did, where it's all about the exterior Jesus sums up the entire law in his two famous commandments. Now, if you come to the 930 Mass, we recite these commandments every single Sunday. And that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, actually, both of those concepts are in the Old Testament. He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy there. But Jesus is saying, this is it. This is the whole law. It's all about love. Love of God and love of neighbor. This is 
the new law. This is the law that we as Christians follow. We don't have a, well, I want to say this, we're Catholics, so we have our share of rules and regulations, but the rules in the church are designed simply to help us understand how to go about that, how to love God. As you all know, there's such a thing as the Sunday Mass obligation, right? You're obligated to come to Mass on Sunday unless you're in the midst of a COVID pandemic and then you get a, then you get a pass. But the reason there is a law to, for, to go to Mass on Sundays is because that is a way we express love of God is by going to Mass on Sundays. And not only that, that gives us the opportunity to visit with our neighbors, get to know our neighbors, get to find out if they have needs. I mean, it, we, we, if we wrap ourselves up around the rule, the rule is go to Mass, then we miss the point. If we see that the rule is love God and love your neighbor, and one of the ways we do that, the church teaches us get, get to Mass on Sundays, right? The core is the love of God and the love of neighbor. That is the law that we follow. Other things Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is communal. You know, there's, we certainly, a lot of people like to think, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's just uh, Jesus, my Bible, and me. You know, I want to go out and just do my own thing with Jesus. I go out and I, you know, go out and commune by the lake with my Bible and, and Jesus and I, and we're tight. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, that certainly is a part of the Christian life, this, the solitary life of prayer, the life of being alone with God. But that's not the whole thing. Jesus teaches where two or three are gathered together, I am in their midst. It is a commun communal experience. The kingdom of God is a community. It is a group of people who come together to pray, to worship, and to participate in the communal experience of God. The kingdom of God is a community. And on the other hand, notice it says, Jesus says, there I am in their midst. The kingdom of God is where Christ is present. Jesus says to the disciples, the kingdom of God is among you. And that's because he is the kingdom of God. He is the rule and authority of God. He is standing there in their presence. And when we gather as the people of God to pray, to worship, to listen to teachings, listen to an old priest rattle on and on, we gather with the presence of Christ. Christ is present in our midst and Christ will act as king of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is the community where Christ is present. Jesus teaches us that the kingdom of God is not material. It's made up of living stones. It's made up, it's like, it's like a building of living stones. Not, you know, we have a beautiful church here. Wonderful, beautiful church. And it's important. Church, the, the church building is important. People tell me all the time, what a comfort it is to see the strength and beauty of this place. I mean, it's a lot of times people don't even come to church here. People don't even come to church. You know, that they, that they will say that there's a, there is a comfort to see the church here, to know that the church is present in Westport, in this, this beautiful, strong stone building with these magnificent windows. It, it means something to people. 
So the, the, the physical building of the church is important, but that's not the kingdom of God. You can tear down all the churches in all the world and the kingdom of God still thrives because it's made up of living stones. It's made up of the people who gather to worship God. Think of the years, the centuries that the church met in the catacombs, in the graveyard, what the catacombs are, met in the graveyard to worship. It wasn't very pretty, you know, and there were, they, there were some Christian graffiti that they etched on the walls. You can see some of that in Rome, but certainly no, no stained glass windows. It was just, it was just kind of a dark, dingy place, you know. But the kingdom of God was the light of that place. The kingdom of God is built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. Okay, so if you're building a building with living stones, you have a living foundation. And the living foundation is Christ as the cornerstone. Laid against that is all of the apostles and the prophets, the bishops. All of the people of God work together to build this beautiful temple of living stones, of living people. There's a beautiful book that we'll probably talk about in a few weeks called The Shepherd of Hermas, where it likens the church to this tower that's being built by angels, and they take the stones, which of course are people, and they have to chip away at them to get them to fit in. And, and so uh, Hermas asks, what are you doing? And he says, well, we're having to chip away all the greed and the pride and the avarice, you know, out of people's hearts so that they can fit into the temple and to the tower of God, the church of living stones. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. But as much as we say the, temp the, the, the church is made of living stones, the church is not material, the kingdom of God is a real kingdom in the real world. It's a real authority because the community works and exists and thrives with the leadership, with the guidance that was established by Christ. Remember, as Jesus is walking around, he's preaching and he's teaching, he's gathering disciples around him. We know the 12, right? But there are actually, you know, when you read through the Gospels, at one point he sends out 70 disciples to go into the villages to, to pray for the sick. In another place, he sends out 120 disciples. So this discipleship band is growing of lots and lots of people that he is teaching on a regular basis. Now, it was the custom in ancient Israel for a, for a rabbi to have one disciple And that one disciple was supposed to learn everything he could from that rabbi. And then when the rabbi passed, he was supposed to carry on the work of that rabbi. Jesus had at least 120 disciples, but probably more than that. But they're the 12 that are key. And 12 is, is just a, a very important number in the scripture. There were uh, 12 sons of, of, uh, of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the 12 disciples. So there's a continuation. We talk about the core of, of this faith be, being so ancient. There's a continuation of that as we have moved from 12 tribes of Israel to the 12 apostles, 12, 12 disciples, 12 apostles. But it's a real kingdom existing in the real world. And the real kingdom of God has real jobs to do. 
And one of those jobs is to bring justice to the poor. A key element in Christ's teaching throughout the Gospels is the care of the poor, to bring justice to the poor. Let me say that. It's more than just simply giving to the poor. It's bringing justice to the poor. And as you see this develop in the early church, the disciples as they're establishing their churches, you realize that it's not just, you know, let's take care of all the poor. Widows and orphans, they always took in. From the very first day the church existed, from the day of Pentecost on, the church is bringing in widows and orphans and they're, they're meeting their every need. They're caring for them. They're giving them a place to stay. They're giving them food. These, you know, in the first century, widows could do nothing. They didn't own property. They, they couldn't work. Orphans, of course, just little children. They have no income from their parents. So the church took them in and cared. However, you also see in the New Testament things like when, where St. Paul says, if he who does not work, do not let him eat. Because it's not just taking care of the poor, it's bringing justice to the poor. And a man who's capable of working is, is required by an act of justice to, to work, to provide for himself, if he has a family, to provide for his family. That's, that's a justice, that's a fairness that the church brings to the poor, not just handouts, but justice. It's a different thing. The kingdom of God also brings freedom to the oppressed. It brings healing to the afflicted. We see that so much in Jesus' ministry, his constant uh, being called upon to heal and to deliver, to bring freedom to people. And the church continues in that ministry, in healing and uh, freedom from oppression. And I know it's easy for us, particularly in this country, to think, well, we don't see a lot of miracles and healings and stuff like that. But actually, when you look at the church, universal church worldwide, it's, it's, it's still a huge deal. There are thousands upon thousands of people being healed miraculously by God's power all the time. It doesn't always make the press, but we see this often and again and again and again. And um, then there are always the, uh, the quiet, I call them quiet miracles, you know, where people um, recover. And it's not like some big dramatic thing, but over time and slowly they begin to recover and gain strength and God's hand is, is, at, act, is at work in that. In fact, there have been numerous studies, the first of which I think was printed in the uh, Journal of Southern Medicine, uh, Journal of Southern Medicine, or the, anyway, I forget the exact title of the, of the, mag of the uh, journal. Where they did this excellent study where they, they got people to pray for the sick in a particular hospital. And uh, so everybody was assigned a person to pray for. And, um, but they didn't pray for all the sick, they prayed for certain sick. And then they compared to see did the people who were getting prayed for, did they fare better than the people who weren't being prayed for? And the truth, and in fact, greatly, there was a tremendous difference in the people who were being prayed for in terms of their recovery rate, uh, low, low recidivity rate. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. But um, the, the, the prayer actually made a difference in health. 
wasn't a dramatic healing, but the prayer actually made a difference in health. People, I just, people who go to church know they live longer than people who don't go to church. It's really true. They live 20 to 30% longer than people who don't go to church. People who go to church have a lower incidence of hypertension, heart disease, mental illness. Um, people, I mean, prayer makes a difference in our lives. It's not a dramatic miracle, but nonetheless, there's that quiet miracle that's constantly going on as we attempt to live our lives in God's presence. The kingdom of God, this is strongly emphasized by Jesus, is characterized by love and unity. Jesus said, by this men will know you're my disciples because you love one another. You love one another. The kingdom of God is characterized by love. And I think one of the reasons we don't see some of the dramatic or more dramatic influence of the church in the world is that we're not fulfilling that very key element in the kingdom of God, we're not spending our time loving one another. In fact, you go to a lot of churches and they spend a whole lot more time bickering than they spend loving. But that is how the power of the Holy Spirit moves in the church, is when the people love one another, care for one another, spend time finding out each other's needs and, and, care, and looking out for each other. By this, the world will know you are my disciples that you, because you love one another. And Jesus prayed. Um, just before he was betrayed, and when it entered into his passion, Jesus prayed that, his, that the disciples would be one just as he and the Father are one. Unity is to be a hallmark of the kingdom of God. And sometimes it's easy for us to, in, in reading this and, and con, just meditating on what Jesus, how Jesus described what he wanted the church to be and realize, well, we, we've really kind of strayed from that. Not completely, but nonetheless, we could it, we get more back into what Jesus is calling us to be. And the more we do that, the more I think we'll see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our world. Now, with all that in mind, let's take a look at the early disciples uh, in the opening chapters of the book of Acts of the Apostles. After Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And one of the things I like to say, you know, people are always waiting for Jesus to come back. Hey, listen, he's come back in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is here. We receive him in the Eucharist. We, 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 met, we are ministered to by him every time we pray. Jesus is here. We're not just waiting for him to come back because he's, he's gone. He's not like Elvis who left the building. He's still here among his people. And so you, when the Holy Spirit descended, it says that all the apostles were in the upper room, the over 120 of them, they're praying in one accord. They're praying together for, for one thing, for God's Holy Spirit to come down upon them. And when that happened, they began teaching publicly daily. And in fact, this is one of the, uh, and they began working in miracles of power and people being healed. It was actually, read the first 
five or six chapters of the book of Acts and, and things are things are happening there and you kind of wonder how come it's not happening here? But nonetheless, things are happening. And, you, and the scripture says they met every day for four things. Every, every day, not just, on, not just their Sunday obligation. And that was the apostles' teaching. They met to learn from the apostles. These are the ones who had spent years learning from Jesus. And they're passing their knowledge down into the church. They met daily for the apostles' teaching. They met daily for fellowship, which is more than just, you know, shaking hands over a cup of coffee. They met daily to become a part of each other's lives, to get to know one another, to find out what each other needed, to care for one another. They met daily for fellowship. They met daily for the breaking of bread, which, of course, is the Eucharistic meal. They met daily to celebrate the Eucharist. And they met daily for prayers. And, and the Greek word there is liturgy. They met daily for the liturgy. So they're praying. And of course, that's the, that's the way the Jews always prayed. They always prayed liturgical prayers. Um, so they're meeting daily for those four things, for the apostles' teaching, for fellowship, for breaking of bread, the Eucharist, and to pray together. And the church is, was growing in power and it's growing in numbers because they are being the kingdom of God. They are the authority of God, the power of God on the earth. It's a real kingdom, real people, real world. Now, just like any other kingdom, sometimes decisions have to be made, right? And believe me, we, we know there are disagreements in our church today. Well, there are disagreements in the very first years of the church as well. There, you, you, throw, you throw three people together, or actually, <laughs> Moti Kahanov, the man who taught me to uh, speak Hebrew, used to say this. If only he could say it, because he was a Jew. He was a captain in the uh, uh, Israeli Sinai force back during the 67 war. And he says, well, you get, if you ever put two Jews together, you'll have three opinions. Well, two of any group of, you know, put any two people together, you get three opinions, right? It is the nature of us to have opinions and agendas, and they always seem to get in our way of being able to connect to God. So there are always disagreements. There are disagreements over the Greek-speaking um, members of the church and the, and the Hebrew-speaking members of the church. And um, then there was disagreements as to whether or not you had to be circumcised, like uh, Abraham was, you know, Abraham's people were circumcised before you could become a Christian, or if, or if all you need is baptism, is baptism enough? And they then they argued over these issues, and there were the conservatives who wanted everything to be done the way the Old Testament told you said to do it. You must follow the complete law. And then there are those who know Jesus has set us free from all that. All we have to do is love. But it's a real kingdom. And so what happens is you have the bishops from all over, you know, all the bishops. And, the, and at this point, you have many of the apostles are still living. The disciples are still living. They all gather together and they discuss these issues. And they issue a proclamation. You don't have to be circumcised. Baptism is enough. But you must still take care of the poor. So they were very selective as to the elements of the law that were reflective of Christ's commands to love God and love neighbor, 
These, they said, are still applicable. If, if it's helping us to love better, this is, this is still, we are still bound to this. But those elements of the law that were just outward observances, like circumcision, you don't have to do that. Again, following the teaching of Jesus. But the fact that the bishops get together and make that proclamation, and then that proclamation is binding on all the churches. Because there's an authority to do that. Without an authority, it's not a kingdom. It's an anarchy. And everybody gets to decide for themselves what they're going to do. And, there's, and there is that element, to some extent, in Christianity today, especially in this country, because we Americans are a very independent lot. And so we, all, we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. But the church has always had the authority given to it by Christ. When Christ appointed his apostles, and Christ, in fact, even appointed Peter as the chief apostles, he says, you're Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock, on you, Peter, I will build my church, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so, and that's really where the, the, the ascendancy of the, uh, the, bishop who, the bishops who are in succession to Peter have a special uh, role in the authority of the church. And it's a very difficult role to define. Um, and it's one of those things that various groups of Christians argue over because it is difficult to define. Is Peter the head? Or is Peter just the called the equal? First among equals. All the bishops are equal, but Peter's the first among the equals. I don't know. I'm not going to try to get it. I'm not trying to make that decision. In the Roman Catholic Church, we have a very clear line of authority. The successor to Peter is our Pope. But that doesn't mean he is like the emperor. The successor to Peter can make a, what we call an ex-cathedral statement. He can define doctrine on the church, but it's only happened twice in 2,000 years. So this is not, that's not like a big deal. But even when he does that, he can't invent doctrine. He can only act as the spokesperson of the Holy Spirit and say, this is what the church has always believed. We will define what the church has always believed. He doesn't make up stuff. He can't make up stuff. So it, the role of Peter as head of the church is a little difficult to explain. But um, nonetheless... Jesus appointed Peter, gave him the keys to the kingdom. He gave authority to the apostles to bind. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. The apostles and their successors, who are now the bishops, and their assistants, who are the priests, <laughs> do have the authority to bring heaven into someone's life. We have the authority to bind and to loose. And that's why you go to the rite of reconciliation and the priest in persona Christi, sitting in the person of Christ, grants absolution. The Almighty God give you pardon and peace and I absolve you of all your sins. All washed away. The priest has the authority to do that because he's given that by Christ who gave it to the apostles who passed it down to the bishops who then passed it on to the priests because of the Bishops don't have time to hear everybody's confession. So, 
In this way, it's similar to the Davidic kingdom, right? The Davidic kingdom was a real kingdom. And Christ does sit upon the throne of David forever. Even though it is a, a spiritual kingdom, it's an invisible kingdom. No, it's not even an invisible kingdom. I mean, you can find the church. You can find the church. You can find a priest. You can find the bishop. You can go to, to a Rome. You can uh, sit and you know, receive a, a blessing from the Pope. <laughs> he blesses everybody. You can find the church. It is visible. But it's not material. It's not material. It is the spiritual power of Christ who created all things and who governs all things. One more thing I want to mention as we talk, look at this, what did Jesus teach about the kingdom of God? And I want to look at this, uh, the Apostles' Creed. And I bring up the Apostles' Creed, and I'm, I realize I'm not quoting Jesus here, but the Apostles' Creed is very ancient. It was developed in the first century to reflect what the, the Apostles taught. Um, some people say, did the Apostles write it? Well, no, not exactly. But, but it, was, it was developed to teach children as a catechetical tool, right? People who want to become Christians, how do I become a Christian? What do I, what do I need to believe to become baptized? And this is what they would say in the first century. Well, you have to believe that in God, who's the Father, He Almighty created, the, he created heaven and earth, and His Son is Jesus Christ. He's our Savior, He's our Lord, and all, goes into the life of Jesus, born of Mary, He was crucified, He descended into hell, He rose from the dead. You know, you... Um, this is what they would use to teach in the first century those who desired to become Christians. So this is definitely linked directly to the teachings of Christ. And in the creed, it gives four marks of the church, four marks of the kingdom of God. These are the four things that characterize the kingdom of God according to the Apostles' Creed. And the first one is that it is one. Remember how Jesus emphasized unity among the church. The church is one. Now, in today we think, well, the church isn't one. The church, there are a million churches. This divided. Somebody starts a new denomination every single day in this country, and that's absolutely true. However, in a sense, the church still remains one. There are dividing lines, but those dividing lines have a whole lot more to do with language and culture than with, um, than with doctrine. There's really very little doctrinal difference between a Catholic and an Orthodox, a Greek Orthodox, right? Now, they're separate, sort of. According to Catholic theology, Catholic doctrine, if, if someone who... who um, was a, a member of the Greek Orthodox Church or Russian Orthodox Church, they wanted to become Catholic, what do they have to do? Absolutely nothing. Because we recognize the unity of the church. They are still members of the Catholic Church, even though they are administratively part of a different organization. Now in Protestant churches, it gets a little different because Protestants have got all, you know, all, there are so many different kinds of Protestants and so many different beliefs so, you know, then you've got to go through some classes and uh, get received into the church, or if you haven't been baptized, you get baptized into the church. But there are still very little doctrinal differences.
even if you get to the, the farthest edge, you know, of, um, you know, the, the, you know, Bobby Joe's Pentecostal church of what's happening now, you know, even if you go way out to the farthest edge, they still believe that God is the father who created the earth, that Jesus is his son who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. I mean, these creedal foundations to the, to Christianity, they, they all believe that. You know, they may be, they all may also believe you're supposed to bite heads off snakes, but, you know, we can deal with that. <laughs> so there's really very little difference theologically, doctrinally, between the Roman Catholic Church and a lot of other communions, most communions. Um, and most of the differences are by language and culture. And so in a sense, the church still resides as one. I, over, I overstressed that thing. The church is holy, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The church is holy. Holy means set apart. This is something that we miss a lot of in this day and age. The church is by its very nature countercultural. We are by our very nature not citizens of this world. We are citizens of the next world. We don't live according to the rules of this world. We live according to the rules of the next world. We do not live in this, we do not exist in this life to see how much money we can accumulate and how many toys we can have, how much power we can exert over other people. We live to be servants of all. We are a countercultural people. And we don't see enough of that because. We tend to spend, you know, most of our time trying to make get ahead in this world and, and in one hour a week or two, because you guys are here on Wednesday night, um, an hour a week coming to mass. So the world has a much stronger influence, even on most modern Christians than it should. But we are called to be holy. We're called to be different. And the reason for that is not so that we can have any kind of pride, but so that the world will know where to turn when things fall apart. When we are a holy people and our friends and our neighbors have troubles that they don't know how to get out of, we're the people that they will turn to. One holy Catholic. And again, Catholic here, we've, you know, you can do Catholic, large C, Catholic, small C. Um, to be Catholic is to be universal. It embraces all nations, all races, all languages, all cultures, all epochs. Catholic is the world. The world is the Catholic Church. Again, let's go back to our very first class. There was a time when there were the entire human race was one family and one religion. And the, what, was, what was right there, what was true there has carried on all the way until, until today. There's so much of that, that God created the world, that, God, that, it, he, that, it was, that everything is good, and that, God, and that we enjoyed a relationship with God that got severed, and, and Christ would come to redeem that, to, to restore that. I mean, all that was believed 10,000 BC. It's still believed 
today. So, Catholic. Now, in the kingdom of David, you wanted to be a part of the kingdom of David, you had to be a member of the nation of Israel, right? And when Christ came to establish the kingdom of God, it's all of God's children, all of God's family. It's the entire earth, and that's why we are Catholic. In fact, the earliest church to strongly embrace Gentiles, that's non-Jews, um, bring them into the church was the church in Antioch, which is the first place that the church refer, the members of the church were referred to as Christians. It's also the first place where members of the church were referred to as Catholic. Catholic, the entire earth. One holy Catholic and apostolic. We're right back to the beginning. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone, living stones built upon what they taught. That means that the church cannot ever, ever, ever change its core faith. Everything, it seems, in this world changes, and it changes so rapidly our heads spin. In fact, I think there are little people who sit in an office somewhere um, in Langley, Virginia, who make decisions as to how much information they'll leak out into the general public about how much the world really has changed. We need an anchor in life. We need something that never changes. And thank God for the anchors we have in life. And those anchors that we have are God. That God cares for us. The church. That God has given us a kingdom in the church. He has told us how to live. He has given us an authority in the church so that when we face difficult times, you don't know what to do. There's some place to turn for guidance. And that is the church. The family. The institution of the family is under such stress right now. But this family is supposed to be one of the anchors in life. And the church holds out that the family must be restored as the anchor of life. And it's an uphill battle, but right? We're set apart. We're different. We're countercultural. So the church, the kingdom of God, established by Christ, is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. It is a church called to be foundationally love, living on the two commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. It is to be communal, that we gather together, we worship together, we learn how to care for one another, serve one another and that we carry this message, this church, to the ends of the earth, because that is the commission Jesus gave to his disciples just before ascending into heaven. He says, this is your job from now to the end of time. Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Carry this gospel, carry the truth of the kingdom of God into the entire earth so that every race, every language, every people, every culture could become one 
under the kingship of Christ in his church. That's all I was going to say tonight about the kingdom of God. I apologize for sitting, but as you can see, I'm wearing a knee brace. I hurt my knee, so I'm having to take it kind of easy. All right, so we move to questions. I don't think we have any songs tonight, but that's okay. I jawed for too long. Mask back on. And, oh, oh, yeah, oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. In that case, I can take my mask back off. Irene does. Irene. Uh, what was the name of the book that you were talking about? Church of the Living Stones. It's a it's a um, it's a very ancient book. It's called The Shepherd of Hermas. The what? The Shepherd of Hermas. H e r m a s. Hermas was a pope, an early pope. He was like the third or fourth pope. Uh, this is a delightful little book um, written by him, or some scholars will say pseudonymously ascribed to him. But nonetheless, it's, it's a beautiful description of the church, the shepherd of Hermas. Uh, one question. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little more in detail where you said that you can bond or lose a priest that authority? Yes. The priest has the authority to connect people with heaven, connect people to God. So when it says whatever you bind, Jesus promised, whatever you bind on earth, bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he goes on. And if you forgive any sins, they will be forgiven. So um, this has to do with such things as deliverance, as healing, and as uh, an absolution, the, the priest speaks in, in the theological term is in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. The, the priest can speak the words of Christ to an individual, such as I absolve you of all your sins. Can, I, can a priest say I do not absolve you of your, of your sins? Priests can and some have. Um, I have personally never not absolved someone who came, but there are, there are those who refuse. But if, someone, if a priest doesn't absolve you of your sins, go to another priest. <laughs> Coming from the Protestant background, understood then why a priest was the one who could absolve and why wasn't saying that we can go to anybody and our sins will be forgiven. So what about when context of where he said that and how that then um, converted or relates to the priesthood? Um. The, the promise of Christ to bind, to lose, and to forgive sins was given directly to the apostle. Not the multitudes following Not the him. multitudes, directly to the apostles. They passed that down to their successors, whom we now call bishops. And then the bishops 
can ascribe that to individual priests, all right? Every priest, when he's ordained, or when he, well, actually when he's incarnated or assigned to a diocese, he will receive a letter from his bishop with faculties as to what he can do. He can, you know, can you say mass, hear confessions, grant absolute? These are actually somewhere in a file. I've got my letter saying what I am empowered to do by the bishop who is empowered by as, as a successor of the apostles. Now, this is interesting. When a man is ordained a bishop, he receives that in of uh, who ordained bishop, and it goes all the way back to Peter. So, you know, from Peter to this one to that one, keeps Peter to Clement to Leo, you know, keeps, just keeps going to Hermas, he's like number four, and it keeps going down until you get to Bishop Johnston, you know, so that we know who passed this. I love that. But this is very, so important in, uh, in the early church, they kept these very detailed lists, very, very early in the church as to who, you know, ordained whom to be bishop. Other questions? Yes, Jay. Three questions. Why are we called Roman Catholics and not Jewish Catholics? That's one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Why is the seat in Rome and not in Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. Third, Jesus picked Rome to be to be built. The, the mic was breaking up on that last question. What was the third question? Huh? Why did Jesus, why did Jesus choose Rome? Oh, well, Jerusalem was the original capital city of the church. Peter and the apostles all were headquartered out of, in Jerusalem. What happened was, is that, remember the, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and, and the Pharisees that, that crucified Jesus, they began persecuting the Christians, Peter and, and the other apostles and the Christians who were living there. And so they began to scatter around the world. Jesus had prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed. Remember that? It's in Luke chapter 24, I think. Not one stone will be left upon other. They'll build up ramparts and the city will be laid to ruins and the temple will be destroyed. He made this whole prophecy. Well, that happened in 70 AD. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. There was literally not one stone left upon another. 
Well, that's actually not part of Jerusalem. That was just a retaining wall. Um, so, but the church had been warned prophetically. There was a, you know, a prophet in, in, in the church in Jerusalem who warned them of, of the, this coming of Jesus' words about it. So they fled into Persia. And so what is the Jewish Catholic Church? The Jewish Catholic Church is now referred to as the Syriac Orthodox Church. They still say the Mass in Aramaic, the same language that Jesus spoke. And it's, it's very consistent there. Um, so that's where the church in Jerusalem fled to, was in Persia, and it's now Syria. And, and that's, that is the Jewish Catholic Church, although it's called the Syriac Orthodox Church. The, of course, Christianity began to spread. It spread to Rome. Peter came to Rome to preach as well, as well as Paul to establish, Peter and Paul both were there to establish the church in Rome. And it's the last place Peter and Paul were, and so they appointed their, so the, uh, Peter appointed his successor in Rome. So it was just kind of, I don't know that it was, um, you know, I think it was a conscious plan. It certainly wasn't the apostles' conscious plan. Whether it was God's conscious plan, I, I don't I can't comment on that. But um, but that's just happened to be where where they were. So it became known as the Roman Catholic Church. It was the Catholic Church in Rome. Um, and sometimes it was referred to the Latin Church. Like I say, the distinctions between these various bodies of Christian churches mostly are long language and culture. So as, uh, like so the Jerusalem church, the Jewish church moved to Syria, became the Syrian, Syriac Orthodox church. Uh, as the church moved into Greece, they started, stop, they stopped saying the mass in Greek, in, excuse me, in, in the Aramaic, started saying it in Greek. And now the Greek church and the, and the Syrian church begin separating because they're saying the mass differently. It gets to Rome and um, they're saying the Mass in Greek, but nobody can understand it. They don't speak Greek in Rome. They speak Latin. So it gets translated into, the Mass gets translated into Latin. It becomes the Latin Church. And almost, in all of Europe, since it was all part of the Roman Empire, spoke Latin. Latin became pretty much the universal language, as far as Europe is concerned, for the, uh, for the Catholic Church. As it moves into other parts of the world, and they keep they keep telling people they have to do it in Latin, that becomes an issue that the church over, overcame during the Second Vatican Council. But anyway, so to answer all of your questions, I don't know if I got the third one, which was, you got it all? I know, that, that, we just covered 2,000 years of history there. So, <laughs> From persecution in Jerusalem to the Second Vatican Council. Okay, what else? Was this helpful? Thank you. Okay, so one of the things that I've kind of struggled to understand, and maybe I'm just not familiar enough with all the different sects of Christianity, but I thought you did a nice job of explaining that the core principles of Christianity are there whether you call yourself maybe a Methodist, a Protestant, a Baptist, a Catholic. And then 
we talk about those core principles and justice for the poor and things like that. And I guess I'm curious if the churches in the Kansas City area, but elsewhere, when I think about it, understanding that I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I'm not involved in the church. This is probably the most heavily I've involved I've been. But do they, is there like a, a way that the different sects band together to try and work together to try and, you know, see past those lines to maybe pool resources or provide more justice for the poor? I genuinely don't don't know. There are a lot of there are a lot of ways that they band together, um, and the impetus on that kind of waxes and wanes, you know, uh, with time. There is an ecumenical council uh, that is a part of our diocese that's that's constantly trying to find ways that we as Roman Catholics can connect not only with with Protestants but also with Jews and and with Muslims. To realize that, you know, in all faith communities, we share a lot in common. Gracious, Roman Catholics have a great deal in common with, with Buddhists. <laughs> we, uh, and that was something that Thomas Merton, a great um, um, Trappist monk, taught us all. That, you know, we share a common prayer life. I mean, our theology is pretty far different from Buddhists. But we share a common prayer life with Buddhists. We, we pray the same way because... Prayer has a lot to do with physiology, not just spirituality. So, um, so there, there are things that the diocese does to try to help these groups come together. One of the things I think that has hindered us uh, in this action in the last, say, 20, 10 to 20 years um, is that the size of our religious communities are, are shrinking. And this is placing a great deal more strain on the leaders of these communities. There are a lot more jobs. Like it used to be in a church like this, there would be four or five priests. You know, now there's one. So there's a lot more strain on the clergy to find the time to go out and meet the clergy down the street. But I understand this particular this parish in particular, and, and Irene and Jay will know more about this than me, used to be very closely involved with the Lutheran church that's two blocks away. And we used to have joint um, Palm Sunday services. And, um, you know, but that's kind of, of waned as, as the communities shrink in and the priests who are in charge, you know, have retired and moved on. And, um, but that's something we need to move back into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah. Yeah. 
and it, and it seems to be more active in, usually those, those clergy associations are more active in smaller towns than big cities because everybody knows everybody and they work together better. Yes, Sanctuary of Hope is a, is a wonderful place. They bring, and it's, it's a retreat center. It's a prayer center. Uh, it's in Kansas City, Kansas, and I've spoken there many times, celebrated Mass there. Um, but because it's a prayer center, you will have Buddhist groups come because, again, that's something that, you know, that, that's basically our common ground with, with organizations like Buddhists because we, we have a very similar prayer life. But Protestants, Catholics, everybody would. And, and the justice to the poor. Yeah, and the, and the, you know, you see, right, wrong, or indifferent, you drive around town, different churches are in various, I mean, you see some churches you hear about are booming, uh, their pews are full, maybe not necessarily right now, because in COVID times, but all things equal. The great equalizer in this. For, for, you know, and I think they're all getting at the same thing, so it's like, well, yeah. is there a way that everybody can chip in to kind of help the community as, as a whole, but, it, you know, that's an oversimplification, I'm sure. The great equalizer in this community is uh, an organization called Harvesters mm -hmm. yeah. that collects huge amounts of, hu of, of food donations and then distributes them out to all food pantries of all churches, all denominations, and actually can connect with the database um, so that people, you know, know who's going to which food pantry, uh, and if there are abusers that just hit, you know, three or four food pantries a day and run around town, we, you know, we'll get information on that. Um, and that's an amazing place, and you can go and volunteer there. And they have, they have freezers that are bigger than this sanctuary. It's just, it's amazing. You can play f frozen football in there. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what it does, yeah. Are they a Christian organization? Are they a Christian organization? Yeah, I mean, faith-based, let's say, because they, they, they will serve anyone who's going to serve the poor. So if, if you're... Yeah. So that was a very long answer. We could have just said yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, in a way, right? It's not necessarily that, like you mentioned, maybe you used to get together. What is that, Jacob's Well over there? Is that the church you were referencing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But maybe you don't sit in church and you hear about how we're going to go have a celebration with the church next door or 
we're going to go participate in an activity with this different denomination. You don't always hear that, but it sounds like there's other ways in which, you know, people are trying to work together for the common goal. So that's nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Pardon? When did angels come into existence? I really don't, don't have an answer for that question. Um, in the Garden of Eden story, there are angels. You know, and that's really the first story we have in the Bible. When they came into existence, how they came into existence, we really don't know. Um, it's the, we're not giving any information on that in Scripture. But an angel is a messenger from God. And I think that uh, in the spiritual economy, there's not necessarily a distinction between a messenger and the message. So an angel is an extension of God's thought and action. Thought and action become the same thing. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing... Mm -hmm. We have, we each have an angel, right? That That's angel right, is we each our, have a guardian angel. Pardon? The angel is our protector? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. The reason that I okay, right through us, right through him. The reason I ask that is because I know that Satan was a fallen angel. And at what point did Satan become the fallen angel? When in history? <laughs> Well, in my reading of, of, of Scripture, and, and it, it's Satan became the fallen angel at the fall of man. The Book of Wisdom talks about Satan, of Lucifer being jealous of man, and by his envy created his own fall. So, um, you know, and, and you realize, you know, in, before the fall. In Eden, Satan is, or the serpent is more like a dragon. You know, he's got heads and legs and tail. He climbs, he can climb trees. And then in the fall, he is reduced to a snake. The dragon becomes a snake. And on your belly, he says, you will, you will eat dust, and on your belly you will live. Interestingly, if you study the anatomy of a snake, snakes actually have legs. 
that are that are inside their body. They at least have they have a little skeletal structure of what used to be legs that that don't or that aren't there anymore. Um, now. We're not, we, you know, we don't have to take the, this whole story literally, but it is, it, well, it is interesting. But um, yeah, the accuser, the accuser deceiver fell from God when he tempted mankind. Mm -hmm. Sorry, anyone, anyone else? Any other questions? I've been John for a while. Cheryl said, if you only talk for 30 minutes, we'll have lots of time for questions. So I talked for 45 minutes. We still had 30 minutes for questions. <laughs> all right. God bless you all. Let us uh, close. Um, to close tonight, let us say a uh, Hail Mary and a Glory Be, okay? So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming. <laughs>